So, let's jump in right now and we'll pick up where we left off. Now, we've been in this series for a while. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Can you guys recite that in your sleep yet? I hope so. We see it every week. We've talked about the idea of who we are in Christ and the identity crisis that's inside of the church today. And why it matters. Because the church is unrecognizable. You don't know what's, which way's up, to be honest with you. In fact, Lynette was telling me some stories and stuff, and you're hearing these trends that are going on, something called deconstructing your faith. And essentially what they're doing is taking the old ideas that they've had, which does not fit current culture, and saying, well, wait a minute. If God is love, then what we believe cannot be true. The problem is, is when your faith is being deconstructed, there's a good chance it was never properly constructed in the first place. Because when you stand on truth, you cannot get taken away from it. You won't fall for a lie. If I came and told you that 2 plus 2 equals 5, y'all would argue with me because we know it's 4. I don't care what Common Core says, it's 4. There's no way around it. And so if I sat here and tried to convince you with everything within me, you wouldn't buy it because you know. And that is where we've got to be grounded at today. But then we've taken and we look at Romans chapter 8 verse 6. It says to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The carnal mind is an enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. Because So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And we've talked about this, and this, we're going to hammer on this today. Is that when you talk about being carnally minded, it is not a moral question, doing all the right things. It is a matter, are you thinking scripturally, are you thinking fleshly? The body, the fleshly world, it cannot be in subject to God. It is against God. It wants to do its own thing. Go read Romans 7 and watch Paul trip out for a minute. The things I want to do, those I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those things I do. He's like having a stroke or something. As he's writing this down. And the thing is, is that we've got to get to the point where we're like, okay, what does it mean to be carnally minded? It means that I am not thinking in line with what God has said. And to be spiritually minded is, I am thinking in line with what God has said. And whatever you think or whatever you believe will dictate how you act and how you speak. It doesn't matter what it is. No matter where you are in life, whatever you believe is truth. That is where you'll land. One of the arguments when I teach apologetics about you have people that have deeply held beliefs, right? One of which is the Muslims. And what does a good Muslim do? They blow themselves up. And I say that kind of half tongue-in-cheek, but it is true. Because in their belief system, they believe that by killing themselves for the good of Allah, that they are promised eternity in heaven. I'm using that in air quotes because that's not what they call it. And the 72 virgins and all that other kind of stuff. And the thing is, is the reason they are willing to lay down their life for that is because they believe it's true. But let me tell you something. If they did not believe that, if they were not convinced, they wouldn't do it. You will willingly lay your life down for a lie that you believe is true, but not the antithesis. You'll never lay your life down for a lie. I don't care what it is. You're not going to die for something you know isn't true. Because you'd show them, right? We've got to get past the point where we begin to stop thinking carnally and start thinking spiritually. In Romans chapter 10, we've been reading in verse 1, stop, jump down to verse 3, it says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against what? 
the knowledge of God. And we bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What is the knowledge of God? It's who He is. It's who I am in relationship with Him. It's understanding who my enemy is. And with that, who my enemy is not. And knowing how I worship God. Those are the four questions that we've answered. And as we do this, we begin to look at something like everything that is coming against you is coming against truth. This is why truth matters. We live in a world where all truth is relative. It's true for you, but not for me. That doesn't work. But we can't think past it. That is why we are so confused on which bathroom to use anymore. Because we don't know what objective standards of truth are. And so as we look at this, they're coming against us. Well, why? Why is it that all of these things are coming against the knowledge of God? In other words, what is true? That's because of Ephesians 11, uh, 6.11. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. When it talks about this, this is the methods of which he attacks, the Greek word methodos. And I've told you, he comes at you and he throws a rock time and time and time again until he can crack through. He will convince you of a lie. He will use scripture to make you believe that lie. I mean, Lynette, with these people you're dealing with right now, are they using scripture to justify it? They're... It's all feelings. But then they'll go around and they'll, they'll reinterpret a scripture. Well, this is what it means. The word love doesn't mean love anymore. The word truth doesn't mean truth anymore. Two plus two equals five today. You see, that's the thing. He has now gotten through. He's broke through. I've told you, it's like he's sitting on people's shoulders. And he's just spreading poison into their mind. In fact, I think Brother Hagen told a story about that, something similar, years ago. But... Until they begin to believe it. Because first, it won't get through. And then it finally will. And then that lie will come out of their mouth. It's just a matter of time. So what do we do about this? See, this is understanding who we are. It's who I am in relationship to God. What I believe matters because what I believe will dictate how I act and how I speak. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Now, here's the thing. He's around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That could be you. It could be somebody else. It's also unbelievers. It's not just Christians. And what do you do? You have to resist him, but what's the key to that? You have to be steadfast in the faith. What is the faith? It's the truth. Steadfast in it. That doesn't mean you can flirt with it. That doesn't mean you do it sometimes and not other times. That means that you are steadfast in that faith and nothing can throw you off kilter. Nothing. Because he's looking for someone. Don't be that someone. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, let's break this down. All authority, how much is that? What is all? It's all. You know what all is in the Greek? It's also all. Isn't that a coincidence? It's all the things. There's nothing that is not under this authority. It's been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. What's left? Nothing. That's simple. So because of that, you go and you make disciples. Now, here's the deal. I don't know if you know this or not. Disciples aren't born. They're created. 
It seems as if that his mandate was for people to go and turn other people into disciples and to baptize them. And then here's the key. Teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. It seems like that's a key component. We have screwed this up. We, as in the church, big C. Because we don't make disciples. We don't recognize the authority first and foremost. We don't make disciples. What we want is somebody to give their life to Christ. We want to hand them a Bible. We want to pat them on the behind and say, good luck. We think they're going to pick it up through osmosis. Is that what Jesus did? Absolutely not. What did he do time and time again? Peter, you moron. How many times do I have to tell you? That's the amplified version. I mean, the thing is, guys, is that he was very deliberate about these people. He hand-selected 12 individuals. He had hundreds and thousands of people that followed him around. But he had 12 specific people that he chose. And he was constantly pouring into them. And what did he do? He put up their stupidity. How many times did he say, how much longer am I going to be with you? Have you not been with me long enough by now? If you have children, you can relate, okay? And that's the thing. It's like he was intentional about his action. He was intentional about whom he chose. He was intentional about what he taught. And he was intentional about the correction that he brought. You know why? Because that's love. We don't do that. We have classes. We do things. But disciples are made one at a time. Not in mass. We've lost that. And then teach them to observe all things that I have commanded. We teach them to observe the things that are convenient. The things that feel good. Get your best life now. That's what we look for. So with that, as we've been talking about this idea, and understanding the authority, we've been talking about different aspects of the spiritual side, because the spiritual side of things is alive and well. It is, it is going on around you, whether you realize it or not. And a lot of times we don't want to recognize it. And I've told you a few stories about interactions that I've had, interactions that people have had. You've heard from Jim. You've also now heard from Neil. And let's go here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's look at this real quick. Verse 1, it says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away by these dumb idols, however you were led. Remember, that's not dumb as in stupid. That's dumb as in can't talk. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministry, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the works of miracles, another prophecy, another discerning of spirits, and another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation in tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Now, as we talked about this, we're talking about the discerning of spirits. And what that is, is the ability, it's a God-given gift, that you can sense something. That there is something more nefarious going on than what maybe the average Joe would recognize. Now, I will tell you this, and you need to understand this. These gifts are given at the will of the Holy Spirit, not how holy you see yourself as. This is not a graduation process that I work my way through, and now I'm spiritual enough to have these gifts. It has nothing to do with that. But in this case, the discerning of spirits, which is something that I do tend to walk in, 
is something that the Holy Spirit gives. It means that one of two things, you can either sense or you know something is going on, or, taking it a step further, you see something is going on. That's where we brought Neil in. He shared his testimony, a little bit of what has gone on and his ability to see some of these things. He even described them for you. Wasn't that fun? It was good to hear from him, though. And the reason I bring these people up who have had interactions with this side of stuff is these are people you know. These are your friends. These are people that have lived their life and have seen this stuff firsthand. This isn't some story off the internet. The ability to discern the Spirit is different than discernment. Because we don't have discernment in this age as a general rule. In other words, that we cannot see the forest through the trees. That's different. And being critical does not mean you're discerning, by the way, FYI, okay? Not the same thing. But the discerning of spirits is looking at a situation and recognizing there is something going on there behind the scenes. You see that scripturally in several places, one of which we talked about when Paul, when the slave girl who had the spirit of divination, and she kept calling and following them around and said, these are followers of the king who will tell us the ways to salvation. Sounds like a good thing. And after a couple of days of that, Paul finally got irritated and cast that thing out of her. It took discernment to recognize what that was. Most people would not recognize that. They would just say, well, she's saying a good thing. It's a true statement. It's no different than when the devil took Jesus up in Matthew chapter 4. And he quotes two passages out of Psalm 91 to him. Were those passages true? Absolutely. He didn't lie to him. It was how he used them. See, there's discerning of spirits and then there's discernment. There's not the same thing. So as we begin to look at this and understand this, I've asked the question, is if all of this is true, that all authority has been given, belongs to the church, that he is the head and his church is the body, according to Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, if that is true, then why does the church not walk in authority today? And what I told you guys, and this is something the Lord put on my heart, is it's this right here. We have this word undisciplined, but you look at the root, and that is the word disciple. And I want to build upon that today. Because when we think about the disciplines of the Christian faith, it's imperative that we know what they are. So, what are they? Not all at once. This is the interactive part here. What would you call as a discipline of the Christian faith? Anybody? Read your Bible. I'm just going to write Bible. Prayer. Prayer, good. You guys love my handwriting, I know that. Belief? Okay. Obedience? What else? Faith? Self-control? Nobody say a word I can't spell. What else? I can't write. I understand. You, Anna? There we go. Now you can read it. Just, just, just to be honest, that, that backfired a little bit on me. Just Love. Wow. Security. What else?
think we've defaulted to the fruits of the Spirit. She's been sacrificing for over 20 years, just so you know. Evangelism, that's a good one. I'd have got there. E-L-I-S-M. Look at that. I used to be a really good speller before autocorrect. The big board. Where's fasting? Oh, we Americans don't like that word, do we? Especially those of us up on this side of the pulpit. What about giving? That's probably good enough. Now, here's the thing. If I asked you guys to really drill down on the meanings of the words, I think we would struggle to come up with a cohesive definition on a lot of this. But what, what I want you to get here is we think of the disciplines of the faith. The primary answer of the discipline of the faith are things that we do. Our Bible reading. Our worship. Self-control would be part of that. Um, evangelism would be part of that. Fasting and giving. I mean, things like that. Those are primarily prayer. These are all things we do. What did Jesus say? When you pray, don't do it like them. When you give, don't do it like them. When you fast, don't do it like them. Right? He was constantly, and it was implied that you are going to do these things. Right? It was an implication given by Jesus that these are going to be a normal part of life. Did he lay down a commandment and say, thou shalt fast every third Thursday? No, he didn't. So the question is, is how did things like that become the disciplines of the Christian faith? Because when you think about that, this is primarily where we tend to go is that these are the things that we do and we think of and all of that. But it's deeper than this, and I'm going to go there today. So now when we talk about this, as we're talking about discernment, we're building upon this. The idea is, is can a believer be influenced by an evil spirit? Okay? Yeah. In 1 John 4, 1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So here's the thing. What did he just say? Don't believe every spirit. That means spirit things that you may see, things that you may think are spiritual, or perhaps spiritual things that thus saith the Lord, either from somebody else or to you. But to do what? Test them whether they are of God. That means you are to judge them. I know we don't like that word. Determine if they came from God. How do we do that? We have to have something to measure it against. In other words, God has had, had to have given us something that we can use to measure whatever is given against to find out if it came from Him. We call that the Bible. You'll learn more about that next Sunday after service. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, here's the question. Deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Have you ever gone to a class led by a deceitful spirit or a demon? The answer is no. So how do those teachings get out there? It's through people. This is what I'm saying. If we, think about this, okay? If I have this new revelation, 
And I believe it is from God. It is my responsibility to take that revelation, test it against Scripture, to see if it came from God. If I skip that step, what happens? I stand up and I say, thus saith the Lord. But what if it's not from God? Well, your responsibility is to take that thing, do what Acts 17.11 says, to take everything that is said inside and study the Scripture daily to see if those things which said were true, and to test those things to make sure they are from God. And if you skip that step, what happens? we got a bunch of people following the teachings of demons and evil spirits. You guys see how that works? There's a reason these steps are put in place. There's a reason there are disciplines to the Christian faith and how we do things. This is the part we've got to get. We have to understand that, that we have an undisciplined church because we have stopped making disciples and we stopped a very long time ago. I grew up in the church and the premise was that I will catch everything through osmosis. That by being in the room and being around people, that everything that I need will be just sponged in. Now, you will get things that way. Don't misunderstand me. But Jesus didn't say, go into big auditoriums and say lots of words and hope everybody gets it. He says, go and make disciples. That's a deliberate action taken by an individual. So with that, now let's look at this a little deeper because we're going to go into this a little further. Let's go to Mark chapter 16. You know this. If you've been in any kind of a charismatic church at all at any point in your life, you should be able to just spit this out. We're going to start at verse 9. Mark chapter 16, verse 9, it says, Now when he rose early, on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and that he had been seen by her, they did not believe. And after that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe that those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. These signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Amen. Now here's the question. What's the takeaway out of that? Y'all feel like you're getting set up right now. And you might just be. So I'll go ahead and fill in the blanks here. You guys have learned. I've been doing this too long. The takeaway the majority of the time is the go into all the world, preach the gospel, and then all the signs. And those are good. Those are powerful. But there's something even greater in there that we often overlook. In verse 14, it says, later he appeared to the eleven. And what did he do? He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Now let me tell you something. If grandma dies, you bury grandma. And your cousin comes up and says, I saw grandma last week. It's okay to not believe your cousin. Because that doesn't happen. But what had Jesus done? He had prepared them. He said, guys, this is what I want you to understand. They're going to come and they're going to take me. 
I'm going to die a terrible death. You stick me in the ground, but three days later, I'm coming back. Do you rebuke somebody for not believing a story of somebody raising from the dead? The answer is no. But when himself has been preparing you for this, you see, he rebuked them of their hardness of heart because he didn't, they didn't believe what he had said. They didn't believe what he had promised. If Jesus appeared to us right now and said, I guarantee this is going to happen, most of us would be like, yep, no problem, right? They seem to struggle with that. What would you have done in that situation? You would have struggled with that. You see, it's the sign gifts are amazing. But he's rebuking their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe what he said. If they didn't believe that, how much harder is it to believe that I can go into all the world and I can preach the gospel and I can lay hands on the sick and they will recover and I can raise the dead and I can do all of these different things. If you can't believe him here, let's go to another one. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. We're going to jump around a little bit. Luke 10, verse 1, it says, After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. Remember, he sent the disciples out. He gave them authority. He said to go, preach the gospel. The kingdom of God is near. Heal the sick. Cast out demons. Hey, come back. A little later. Appoint 70 others also. Sent them two by two before his face in every city in place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, sandals. Greet no one along the road, but whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. And if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter, and they receive you eat such things as they're set before you and heal the sick there and say to them the kingdom of God has come near to you but whatever city you enter and they do not receive you go out of the streets and say the very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you nevertheless know this that the kingdom of God has come near you and I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the day of Sodom than for that city so here we go again now this is what Jesus is doing he'd sent out the 12 with the same mandate they came back gave a report now he's sending 70 what's he say I want you to go out I don't want you to take anything with you I want you to go and tell them that the kingdom of God is near. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to cast out demons. I want you to preach the message of the kingdom. If they receive you, great, your peace is on them. If they don't, wipe the dust off your feet and move on. Don't worry about it. Go. How easy is that to do? You think they had other things going on in life? Sure. I'm sure they did. You think they had families? Probably. I don't know. Doesn't tell us who the 70 were. I'm sure they could have found a million reasons not to go in every excuse in the book. Well, God, we've got to fundraise first. We've got to raise the funds to do this. And I know you said, like, don't take anything, but surely, I mean, I can take an emergency credit card, something, right? That's how we act. That's not what he said. He just said, go. He gave a direct commandment. So they went. They were obedient. We don't know all the details. We just know that they went. They returned, verse 17. With joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now look, verse 19. Well, actually, verse 17. The demons are subject to us in your name. They were surprised by that. Probably shouldn't have been, but they were. Then he says, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. That is not snakes and bugs. Okay? That is not what that is referencing. These are called types. 
In Luke chapter 11, you can talk about how would you give your son a serpent? How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask? There's a tie in there. He says, I give you authority to trample on serpents, scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy. Is that true? Of course it was true. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Beautiful. But, don't get excited about this. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, here's what I want you to get. When we talk about the disciplines of the faith, we talk about a lot of things that we do. Right? Even down to the fruit of the Spirit, we try to do those. Oh, Lord, give me more patience. Don't ever pray that. He'll test them. And if you have young children, just... It's just a season. You'll be fine. But it's not what we do. You see, they were rejoicing in the authority that they had because they weren't expecting that. He says, that is simply a result of your positioning with Him. The disciplines of the Christian faith, in other words, that we are a disciple, is who we are as a result of what he has done. An apple tree does not attempt to grow apples. It simply grows them because of the essence of what it is. Apple trees don't make oranges. They do a lot of weird stuff with corn around here. But at the end of the day, it's still corn. We have purple potatoes now. I don't know why we have purple potatoes, but they exist. But no matter what they do, they grow as a result of what they are. The disciplines of the Christian faith is not that we do these. It's the fact that we are a new creation in Christ. And as a result of that, these are the things that happen. You don't try to walk in the authority. The authority belongs to you. You either utilize it or you don't. You can convince yourself, well, I don't need to pray or read the Bible, or I don't need to go to church, or I don't need to do whatever the case may be. But those are all things that are disciplines because a true disciple of Christ is never going to be stagnant. I heard somebody say this years ago. If you're not growing daily, you are dying gradually. There is no neutral in the body of Christ. There's a reason that a disciple of Christ, and I'm not even going to use the term Christian because that is so overblown anymore. There's a reason that a disciple of Christ avoids certain things. God created sex to procreate and for fun, but there's a certain order that God put it in. And a true disciple of Christ will follow that order and not question it. You guys see that? The disciplines aren't what we do. It's who we are. The things that we do are a result of who we are. In other words, what you really true will come out in the words you say and the actions you take. You cannot believe that God heals the sick through the laying on of hands and then not lay hands on sick people. You can't believe that because you obviously don't or you would. Or you refuse to allow somebody to pray for you. Oh, I don't need it. It's okay. I'll be fine. You obviously don't believe that. That's the thing. That's what the Lord has been trying to get through. Is we say a lot of things. 
But how we act really dictates what we believe. When the Bible says to fear not, that means you don't go in hiding because of a pandemic. I'm not talking about being dumb. But we're not afraid of it. We're not afraid of death. We're not afraid of sickness. We're not afraid of an economic crisis. We're not afraid of any of that because our source does not belong to anything on this earth. The disciplines are a result of who we are. That's the difference. Matthew chapter 14. I want to show you something here. Verse 22. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. And go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening had come, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking in the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous and he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when he got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those who were on the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, here's the thing. He's walking across the water. They're all freaking out. This was a common thing because sailors believed in ghosts. This was a normal thing, especially the time. Probably still true today. I have no idea. I don't know any sailors, okay? So if you do, you can correct me. And when they see this, understandably so, here's this dude walking on the water. Jesus was on the mountain. He's not near the boat. So you might be a little freaked out by that. And Peter said, Jesus, if this is you, tell me to come. So Jesus said, come on. And he stepped out in obedience immediately. But what happened? He looked around and the fear set in. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes him. You of little faith. Why did you doubt? In other words, what was the difference between the commandment to step out and the time that he started to sink? It was what he was looking at. Somewhere in there, what he truly believed was, I shouldn't be walking on this water. Because people don't do that. I don't know about you, but when I fly, and I don't fly a lot, I prefer not to fly. I know y'all fly all the time. I was on that little airplane with them one time. First of all, I question whether I should have been on that little airplane, not because of his piloting skills, but I don't belong up in small things, okay? There ain't enough horsepower on that thing to get me off the ground, or so I felt. Let's put it that way. But the thing with the little plane, as he was turning the corner, I could feel the wind blowing in. I'm like, if this cloud sneezes, we're all dead. This is where it ends today for us. But I don't fly very often, and then, you know, and I tend to be overly analytical and tend to overthink things, and when I get up into an airplane, very high in the air, something dawns on me. This thing's heavy. Heavy things fall, not go up. I'm not thinking about the laws of lift or anything like that. I'm thinking, why are we in the air? I don't understand this. We probably shouldn't be in the air. What if we were breaking God's command? Maybe He wants us on the ground. If He wanted us in the air, He'd have given us wings. And then I come to, and I'm all right. You see, the moment that Peter began to look around, he began to doubt what Jesus had commanded. He he lost it all. And Jesus rebuked him. Yes, you guys see that? You see, the essence of who he was was immediate obedience, and then he took his eyes off of what he should have had his eyes on. Not just looking to Jesus. It's Jesus said, I can come, therefore I can come. 
He believed him enough to step off the boat. Most of us would never do that, but he believed him enough to do it. What changed? He allowed fear to set in. That's what changed. Let's look at another one. Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to explain this here in a minute, so bear with me. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said, Well, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Now hold on one second. Now, the binding and loosing part we'll come back to another day. We're not going to talk about that. But this passage has often been mispreached. And it's because we don't understand the context. And what it says is that on Peter, depending if you're Catholic or not, on Peter being the rock that the church has built, the first pope, that's not true, but that's what they say. Or it's sort of a metaphor that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. It's kind of this metaphorical thing. I will build my church. There's nothing the enemy can do to stop it. Is that true? Not exactly. But it's actually deeper than that. Let me show you something. Let me put that first picture up for me. You guys know what this is? Have you seen this before? Anybody? This is called the gates of hell. The first thing we do is we look at where were they going? The answer was Caesarea Philippi. This was known as the gates of Hades, the domain of the dead. You can go to the next picture, show you a little bit more, a little broader view. This is where the worship of Pan took place. There's also a worship of Caesar and other gods there. This was a well-known place. It was actually more built out than this. This was the grotto of Pan. Pan is the little like half goat, half man, blowing the little flute or whatever that thing was called. Go to the next picture. You can kind of see here that cave entrance, and they found some of these ruins in the foundation. Some of this is artist licensing here. They, they, they're not 100% sure. But they would go in there. It was at the mouth of the cave, and it was the temple to Augustus. Remember, Caesar was God. The son of Caesar was known as the son of God, one of many gods. Okay, You've got the court of Pan, the temple of Zeus. You've got the upper tomb temple and the lower tomb temple all there. And they would come in here, and they would sacrifice and they would believe that the fertility goddesses would stay in these caves during the winter and would come out in the spring. Why did they believe that? All the rabbits were born in the spring. I don't know if they had rabbits, but you get the idea. And they would stay in there, so they would come and they would make sacrifices because fertility was a big part, not just for them as individuals, but also for their livestock. And they would make these different sacrifices in this. And this was known as the, the domain of the dead, the gates of Haiti. If you cross into that, you entered into the realm of the dead. When you think hell, you think fire, brimstone, all of that. Quit thinking like that. That's not what it's talking about. This is the domain of the dead. Now, go to the next picture here. You see all these little carvings in this? And if I, you can go and look this stuff up online. There's tons of this, these different pictures and stuff. What they would do is they would bring in their various idols into these places. It was an extreme 
pagan worship, extreme pagan worship. Different sacrifices, uh, I believe child sacrifice, stuff like that. Where were they standing? Caesarea Philippi. At the heart of this massive region where pagan worship was taking place. And what did Jesus say? On this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It wasn't just a metaphor. He was pointing at a real place. He was showing them that the authority that he had was greater than this. This was predominantly believed. You see, that's what we've got to start thinking like Jesus thinks. We have to think how he taught. We have to be who he calls us to be. We have to be his disciples. The things that we say and the things that we do are an overflow of what we believe to be true. I say this all the time, okay? With sports, let's use sports as an example. I used to coach baseball. And we put some pretty good teams together. And uh, for the, it was kind of the old analogy that those who can't do coach. It was very true. I wasn't the greatest ball player ever, but I, I was a decent coach. And I would every, you know, after about the first two weeks of practice, because we'd have batting cages open after practice, we'd have like throwing drills that they could do. You know what percentage of the kids would stay after to do these different things? Very small percentage. I said, how many of you guys want to improve this summer and be a better ball player and make the All-Star League? Every one of them raised their hand. Nobody says no. Then it's like, how many of you guys stayed after to work in the batting cages, to work on your pitching or, or different stuff like that? Like two. Because you can wish for one thing, but what you want, you'll drive to get. When you want something, you'll chase after. Everybody wishes to have abs, but nobody wants to not eat cupcakes. Right? It's the same thing. Here, we wish God would do more in our lives, but we don't want to be disciplined and allow His fruit to carry over. Let's look at John chapter 14. This is the last passage. John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, how? We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And, and from now on, you know him, and you have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? So what's he doing? He's getting on to him. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the work themselves. Believe him that what? That the Father is in him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. 
And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. I will pray to the Father and he will give you another helper. That he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Now what is he telling him? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Well, how are you going to show us the Father and not the world? Well, he who loves me, you keep my commandments. In other words, we don't try. This is a result of who we are. A result of who you are leads to the authority that Christ has given. The choice to walk in that authority is up to you. Many choose to do nothing with it. They will sit on the sidelines their entire life and make excuses as to why they can't. But Jesus is talking to these guys, saying, I'm telling you all of this now so that you'll remember. When I go, the Holy Spirit will come. He will guide you in all truth. He will bring all the things I've said to your remembrance. And he goes on and on. The he who does not love me does not keep my words. But he who loves me does. You see, that's the thing. It's not an attempt that we make. It's a result. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. You see, that's the thing, church, is we've got to recognize. We try to make a list of do's and don'ts. I've heard it for years. Young person will come, how far can I go with my girlfriend before I've crossed the line and I'm now sinning? I'm like, well, we just started. Because now your motives is how close to the edge can I get without actually falling off? That's the wrong motive. Your heart's not pure. If your heart was pure, you'd be like, Lord, all I have is yours. Everything belongs to you. I'm going to follow you. See, that's the distinction. We need to be disciplined. We need to be disciples of His. Disciples is a representative of who He is, of what He said. There is nothing that the apostles said after the ascension of Jesus that they did not first learn from the very mouth 
of Jesus. They did not do anything that Jesus had, that had already not done. And they walked in the full knowledge and authority. And remember what they said. When they had gotten arrested and beaten, what did they do? They went back and said, Lord, we are so grateful that we seem worthy to suffer for your name's sake. You want to know why the church in America doesn't walk in the authority that it should? It's because we won't do that. That's the truth. We're going to keep building upon this, guys. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and I thank you, Lord, that you are correcting hearts right now. That you're moving in this place, that we will see the errors of our ways and the things that we have missed, Lord, and that we'll get a greater understanding of who you are and a desire to walk in your truth. And Lord, I thank you that we have a people that are ready and willing to be used by you, to be your servant, to be your hands and feet. Lord, we give you the glory and honor in this place today. We thank you so much for what you continue to do. I thank you that you're moving here and that we're seeing lives transformed by your power. And Lord, we just thank you for all things and give you the glory. It's in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday.